often Peter issues a call to arms. And he's standing firm in grace. Grace does not mean we don't have a battle in front of us. One of the people that Peter is using indicates that there is a fight that we have. Usually when we use the term arms, we think of arms in terms of um, armed services or armed forces. We think of the right to bear arms and refer to a defense against the threat, uh, against an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy us, or to enslave us. In Peter's usage, the difference is that our use of arms doesn't harm those who may be against us, but is to resist their influence where it would tempt or lead us to disobey, to be disloyal to King Jesus, our commanding officer. So let's look at our text today in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign your and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though in the judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God is. So the, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, that first phrase there takes us back to what Peter's point was last week. Last week we saw that through Christ's suffering, he overcame hostile spiritual powers that would be against us and seek to ruin us and keep us from coming to redeeming faith in him. Uh, That truth was to encourage these believers that Peter was writing to because they were suffering for doing good in Christ. That as Christ was glorified through his suffering, so will they reach final glory as they suffer in Christ. So that was the point. Christ suffered and reached glory. His suffering for them would ensure that their suffering would also reach final and full glory. That is eternally being in the presence of Christ. And Christ suffered in the flesh and a human body, susceptible to the same weaknesses that we are, that his readers were and that we are today. So there's no guarantee more certain than this. There's no guarantee more certain than that Christ's death and resurrection, his suffering and death and resurrection in the flesh, purchased our salvation and guarantees that we will attain final glory. There's no guarantee that you can have more certain, whether in getting a degree in school, uh, promotion in your job, health care, social security. It's easy to be more certain than that, right? No certainty within marriage or who you're going to marry or product warranties. Nothing else is as absolutely certain as Christ's triumphant victory for us, for our salvation. 
And that gives us confidence to do good even while we face suffering and doing good. And that doing good is doing good in Christ. So where Peter goes from here is, so the words, since therefore Christ suffered, means Peter's going to tell us what this means for us. And he tells us what it means for us. It means arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so, as we noted, that terminology is kind of military sense to it. It means prepare for battle. Uh, Arm and prepare and equip yourselves. With what? He says with the same way of thinking as Christ. Well, what was that? The way Christ thought about suffering in relation to his mission. He knew that suffering was inevitable in order for him to carry out the redeeming mission that God had assigned to him. That was a necessary part of it, and it's inevitable. So for us, if we're going to arm ourselves with the same way as thinking as Christ, then we also have to have that same perspective. The only way that we will live for Christ and serve his mission to the world is to be willing to suffer for him. And then he makes a statement for... Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what does Peter mean by that? Because if you haven't noticed lately, ceasing from sin is pretty difficult. Have you noticed that? Kind of a challenge. So what's he saying? Well, he means that if you're willing to suffer for Christ in the flesh, and the flesh just means our fallen humanness that we, in which we are so sadly familiar with, uh, in the flesh with all its susceptibility to temptation to sin, all of its weakness, all of its fear of man, Uh, to seek the approval of people rather than the approval of God, to choose self-protection rather than self-sacrifice and service. Our flesh does those things automatically. If we're willing to suffer for serving Christ and living for for God's will, then we will have ceased from sin as the, the ruling principle of our lives. doesn't mean sinlessness, but it does mean sin will no longer be calling all the shots in your life. And so if you've come to Christ... By definition, sin no longer is saying jump and you say how high. Not as a ruling principle in your life. There should have been a break, a noticeable break, when you come to Christ, that that takes place. And the encouragement is, the scriptures call us to remember that break was, was made and follow in what Christ has provided for breaking with sin. So the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If suffering is part integral to the Christian life, then if you are willing to suffer for Christ, then you will have broken with sin as the ruling principle in your life. And we see that is what Peter's talking about in in verse 2. Because he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the the will of God. We are to suffer for Christ, armed with his way of thinking about suffering. Hating it, Jesus didn't love suffering. We're it would be very weird to love suffering. But persevering through it as necessary to carry out the will of God so that our lives are not characterized by choosing habitually natural fleshly passions and desires, but rather our lives should reflect a settled commitment to choosing the will of God. Again, Peter's not saying that he expects his readers nor uh, we are current day readers, are going to attain sinless perfection in this life. But our 24-7, day-in, day-out life should be characterized by choosing God's will over the natural human desires anywhere that those are in conflict, which they frequently are. And so when you do fail to choose God's will, then you still obey God's will in seeking forgiveness through Christ. 
So he wins no matter what. He provides the way of our not carrying out God's will, and he provides the way for us to carry out God's will. And so we're always looking to Christ. If you get nothing else out of this message today, keep looking to Jesus. He is faithful. He has won the victory for us, and he's still victorious even when we lose battles along the way. So Christ suffered to obey God's will. We suffer to obey God's will. The difference between Christ's suffering and ours is that his suffering was completely for us, He didn't deserve one fragment of the suffering he got. He did it so he could save us. He did it for God's glory, but for God's glory in our salvation, preserving us from eternally suffering for our own sins. Our suffering for him is due to identification with Jesus and resisting the pull of our own sins, which Christ died for. He died so that we could be freed from sin, and we still have that pull, and so we look to Christ to strengthen us to overcome that always downward pull. In fact, he goes on in verse 3 and says these words, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What is Peter saying there? Peter is saying, Hey, you wasted enough time already wallowing in the things the ungodly people desire to do. Any time spent in God devaluing and God denying uh, ways of living, desires, any time wasted in sin-serving and savoring pursuits has done enough damage and destruction. Haven't you had enough of that? Isn't it incredible? As much as we see that, we still gravitate towards sin. We know sin ruins us, but we do it anyway. And as Gollum would say, don't you hate that precious? I'm not going to try to do the voice. You just have to, no, 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 not going to do the voice. Nope, can't make me do it. Trying to run our lives on sin is like trying to run your car on cheap, bad gas or run your body on junk food. How's that working for us? C.S. Lewis said these words, God designed the human being, the human machine, to run on himself. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. So you can run on cheap fuel or you can run on God as you were designed to. And sin sucks the life from us, right? Or we could just remove the words, the life from us, and say sin sucks the life from us, right? Evil is a parasite, C.S. Lewis again. These are my two C.S. Lewis quotes for the day. Evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. Evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. Sin is like methamphetamines or any other reality-distorting drugs. It it gives us a false feeling of a high. It gives us a false feeling of of satisfaction, of, of being more free and alive, when in reality it is enslaving us and killing us. So Peter doesn't leave them to wonder, his original readers, what they had been, what the mess they had been in before they came to Jesus. So he reviews for them specific areas, the desires that were prevalent in the culture that was part of their pre-conversion background. He said, you guys have spent enough time living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Sounds like typical college campus, right? Or at least fraternity. Uh, the first two words, sensuality and passions, have to do with sexual sin, most likely. Uh, definitely sensuality does, the word sensuality. And the question I've asked is, do we even feel 
how sex-saturated our culture is anymore or have we just gotten so numb to it we don't even notice it anymore? So that's an area for, for prayer and sensitivity. Have we gotten so used to it it doesn't phase us anymore? The word passions can refer to lust for sexual immorality, but can also refer to a broader term that anything desiring that is morally wrong or to covet, wanting what doesn't belong to us, or just out-of-control desires for earthly, worldly things. So sensuality and passions. That was part of their background. You've done that enough, he said. You don't need to do any more. The next three words, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties, all relate to wild, drunken partying and the associated immoral behavior that goes with it. I heard an interview of a mother and son, Martha and Ken Grimes, who co-authored a book called Double Double, a dual memory, a memoir of alcoholism. Uh, they were asked this question, do you think you drank because of an emptiness, a void inside? There's no Christian anything to this interview at all. And they said, yes. In fact, Martha said, we all do. That's why we, there are so many addictions. And they ended saying, I still have that emptiness inside. So as we said earlier, quoting C.S. Lewis, we were meant to run on God. He was meant to be the fuel. He was meant to be that which fills us. We can't fill ourselves and be satisfied and whole with anything but what we were meant to be filled on. That's God himself. We were designed to be filled with God, not anything else with priority over God. And otherwise, we get destroyed. Addictions destroy us. And then he said lawless idolatry. They had been involved in that. That shows how much their pagan worship of gods and goddesses who exemplified these kinds of behaviors uh, was, was part of the warp and woof of their culture. Their whole culture was, was built in with these things. And the truth is, we become what we worship. Whatever we worship, we become. That's because that's how God designed us. Only his original design was we worship him, we delight in him, we find our satisfaction in him, and we were meant to grow more and more into being like God. When anything takes God's place, that becomes like God to us, and we gravitate to that and become more and more like that thing or that person or that activity. So we can't change how we were wired to work. We just need to get reoriented to our, our, our worship disorder needs to be reordered toward Jesus. Now, if you don't have wild partying in your background, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, who do or don't. If you don't have blatant pagan idolatry and sexual immorality in your background, that's good as far as it goes. But we probably need to know that we're not off the hook. If that's, because that was their background, so that's why Peter's talking. Primarily, that was a big part of their culture. Um, so, God's not any less offended by our respectable sins. You know that, right? And so we need to list to just prompt us to think about what those might be. Uh, first would be a religiosity without real love for Jesus, just being religious without a love for Jesus. That God hates worse than anything, doesn't he? Or how about anxiety and wor worry? Some of our sins of choice are wrapped around anxiety and worry, not trusting God. Or discontentment. Or lack of thankfulness, lack of great gratitude. We have so much to be thankful for. Or pride. Pride, that's kind of generic. But uh, a few, just a couple of sample cues on that is you're always right, right? Or you're always ready to be offended. You're really easily offended. That could be a sign that pride is big 
issue. It is for all of us in some measure. Bad habits, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, cut it out. It's a sin. Um, Fashionable anger, it's judgmentalism, envy and jealousy, gossip, greed, covetousness. Okay, so there's lots of ways that we need to break from sin, right? Respectable sins are unrespectable. Sin lies to us. You want to know some of the lies sin tells us? You know these. So I'll just be reflecting back to you what you've already heard. So one lie is, this is such a minor insignificant sin, it's really not a big deal in God's sight. That's one lie. Uh, the truth is, every sin is a horrible offense to God. Every, any and every sin I commit is a sin that Christ had to die for in order for me to be forgiven. That's how much God hates sin. Or another lie is, I'll give in to sin this one time and then I'll be done with it. How many times have you done that? Just this one time and I'll be done with it. I just need to get it out of my system, we say, we think to ourselves. And we, we even tell other people, that, oh, just go get it out of your system. Nope, that's not how it works, is it? The more you sin, the more you're used to it, the more you, you destroy your conscience, the more it gets a grip on your life. It's never get it, get it, gets it out of your system. It always uh, hardwires your system even more. You never walk away from sin unscathed, ever, no matter how, quote-unquote, little we think it is. It always does damage. The more I give, give in to sin, the more entangled I become. Sin always leaves scars. Or another lie is, well, this sin is just a part of who I am. I've always struggled this way, and I always will sin this way. That's a huge lie. If Christ is in your life, he has delivered you from those sins. You just need to embrace who you are in Christ, live out of your identity in Christ. It is a battle. That's why, we're, that's why Peter issues a, a call to arms. But you don't define yourself by your sin and say, that's just the way I am. That's always, uh, always going to be that way, and you just give up on it. That's a denial of, the, of what Christ has provided. You absolutely do not have to obey that desire, whether it's gossip or gambling or drinking or whatever. You do not have to in Christ. Or a fourth lie, and then we'll, we'll stick with truth here for a while is, uh, I need to give in to this sin in order to be happy. Now, we may not say it that way, but that's how we think. I won't be happy unless I give in to this sin. And shouldn't experience tell you, tell us, tell me, that sin never provides happiness? It never does. It's temporary fleeting. It's false. It promises sweetness, yet ultimately delivers a payload of destruction, damaged relationships, dissatisfaction, and hardness of heart. So, anyway, don't listen to those lies. Don't listen to those lies. Well, verse 4, Peter writes this. So, with respect to this, this lifestyle that he's calling them to, to be done with, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So, now people assume their religion and worldview are right. They are the norms. Of course, everyone goes along with it because we've, we've always done it this way. No matter how perverse it is, this is our culture. It's the air we breathe. It's the way we do things here in this culture. That's how we think. Or we don't, we're not even aware we think that way. It's just what we assume. It's just what we do. So it must be right. In Peter's day, the sensuality, the drunken partying, the pagan idolatry was part of the normal lifestyle. It, just, it was acceptable. Everybody does it. They have for generations, so it must be right. And you're weird if you don't participate. 
So the world is not content for Christians to break rank when it comes to breaking free of cultural, culturally supported sins, to go outside of the cultural norms. The religion and culture of that day were inseparable. The United States has been unique in history to actually theoretically divide church and state religion from and try to have a secular culture. But if, whether we admit it or not, uh, a society acknowledges an allegiance to a religion. Some acknowledge it. So in Buddhist countries and Islamic countries and Hindu countries, they just assume religion and culture are the same. But whether you admit it or not, a society's religion may be secular in nature like ours, but every bit as religious as those who admit they are religious. So at least they're honest about it. Hey, we embrace the fact that our religion and culture are the same. We try to pretend it's not, but we have just as much a religious conformity as secular religious conformity, and there's tremendous pressure to conform. And that's really what I want us to hear today. There is more pressure than we ever imagined on our cultural cloisters to conform and that um, put a straitjacket on us if we let it. So, what, what about our country? What about North American culture? There's all kinds of ways that we have to conform. So, for example, macroevolution is an explanation for everything. If you question it, you're considered a fool, anti-scientific. Or my right to do what I want sexually. What I do in private is nobody's business. That's one of our standard doctrines, orthodoxy. Don't you question that, right? Or my right to buy a house, car, or college education, no matter how much debt I need to take on. If I can't pay for it, somebody else should. Or my right to redefine marriage or skip, uh, skip it and enjoy the privileges of marriage or change marriages if this one isn't making me happy. And opinion polls tell me what's right. And on and on and on we could go with our culturally constrained sin. So for, to, to personalize it, here's a question I have for us. What in your, in your culture, your family culture, your peer group culture, your friendship culture, or your sports culture, or your work culture, has sinful compromising practices so integrated that for you to break from that, it almost seems impossible. It just keeps causing you to stumble again and again and again. You keep yielding to it again and again because it's so built in to your family, to your school, to your friendship, to your work culture, whatever. So those are the things we need to pay attention to. So the point is, as Christians, we can't go with what the culture tolerates or approves. We must choose rather to suffer for Christ, to live for what pleases Him. Even if they malign you, as Peter says, they will. Nobody likes you to break rank. You don't, you don't defy the standards. You don't defy the norms. We must recognize how much we are influ influenced by culture, whether on the small scale of family or the larger scale of of the nation or your school or whatever it is. So there's a study I heard about this week about whistleblowers in organizations. Uh, David Meyer is a researcher at uh, University of Michigan. He did a survey of 30,000 people. And he looked at how many people reported seeing violations of their company's code of conduct. And he said as many as one in five people reported seeing violations, but only half reported them. What made the difference in people's reporting them was not, did they have ethical leadership? They thought, they assumed, well, if you've got ethical leadership, people will be more ethical or they'll be more uh, apt to report violations of ethics in the, in the company. But what they found is what made the difference was not ethical leadership, but whether they had ethical peers or coworkers. So that made the, by far the bigger difference. 
So he probed deeper with further research to see if he could confirm what was going on. And he concluded that about 20 to 25 percent of people tend to do the right thing regardless of the environment. And about 75 to 80 percent either are often or heavily influenced by their environment. So those are just statistics, and that doesn't tell us a whole lot, but they, but they are indicative that it's a rare person who is not strongly influenced by his or her environment to do what is right. And, of course, we're looking at doing what is right in God's sight, not just company norms. So we will avoid being the weirdo. We will avoid being maligned. We will avoid being ostracized unless we arm ourselves with, with Christ's way of thinking, that love for God and loyalty to God is always worth choosing. Love for God and loyalty to God is always worth choosing. And the only way that's going to have a real reality of an impact for us is as we um, are addicted to God's Word and approach it recognizing that in God's Word, the main theme of God's Word is Jesus Christ, the glory and the love of Jesus Christ. If we know God loves us, we will love Him back. And so, as we dwell in God's Word and we, and we recognize His love for us and the great promises like what we're seeing in Peter, that He gives us what we need to overcome sin, and in His love He has redeemed us, we will love what He loves and hate what He hates and grow in loyalty to Him. Peter closes out what he says here by saying, but these ungodly, this ungodly peer group, the culture that they're coming out of, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, they thought they could do as they pleased and get away with it. Uh, they wanted all, everybody to join and approve of what they were doing. But Peter, Peter is saying that the confidence that they can have, the confidence that the believers can have of breaking rank and not going with what the culture pressure is, is that the desire for justice is not wrong. God himself is a God of justice. And he's built within us a sense of justice so that when we see, hear of, or experience injustice toward ourselves, we want it to be made right. That's a normal, a normal feeling. So our willingness to suffer for living for Christ is not or should not be merely a martyr complex. It's not that we are eager to see people judge, but we recognize that where people remain in unrepentant sin... We don't have to capitulate to that because God will judge in the end what those who have um, lived that way. So part of our confidence and willingness to suffer is knowing that Christ, the Savior for the world, will also be the judge of all. Not popular to talk about Christ's judgment. It is not popular. Uh, but we recognize He is the Savior, and today is a day of salvation. But judgment is coming. And the question is, why do we need grace if we don't deserve judgment? So Christ, in the end, will judge justly. Either his justice will be granted to us freely by his grace because of his death for us on the cross and his resurrection for us, and so therefore we won't get justice toward us because Christ took our judgment on our behalf, or without that protection, we're going to be judged. So God is just. And he says, and finally in verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, some have thought this refers to Christ himself going to preach the gospel to the dead. They often connect this back with uh, verse 19 of chapter 3, 
But we saw that the prior verse, uh, prior passage, Christ was talking about, Peter was talking about Christ proclaiming victory to evil spirits in prison, back in verse 19 of chapter 3, not to dead human beings. So those who hold this view believe that this is Christ providing opportunity to dead people to respond to the gospel. This goes against the clear teaching of Scripture, which everywhere says that it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. And the scriptures urge the preaching of the gospel to the living as the only opportunity for hope of salvation. So there's nowhere does it hold hope that, well, you might get a second chance after you die. Just the opposite. In fact, Peter's whole letter is persevere in faith because that's the only way that you're going to receive eternal life is faith and a faith that perseveres, not just a shot in the, in the dark intellectual faith, but a true ongoing trust in Christ. So Peter's simply saying that the gospels preached to those who had believed and now are dead. Not that Christ went, but that the gospel was preached to people who believed it and died. Just like when Christ suffered and died, his victory over his enemies and for those whom he died was not evident until he was resurrected. So just like people would look at Jesus and say, ha, he's dead. They didn't recognize he was actually victorious until he was resurrected. So it is with us. Uh, we believe, we struggle against sin, we suffer for breaking rank with the culture, and then we die and they look at us and say, so what? You know, they, they missed out on all the fun, they're dead, there's no hope for them. And we have that same certain hope of, as Peter says, we might, even though we're judged in the flesh the way people are, um, it's worth it to suffer for Christ because even though people might judge us according to man's standards, as foolish for breaking from sins, and they still died, according to God's standards, they chose the way of life. Those who received the gospel and are now dead live in the Spirit and will be raised in a body like Christ by the Spirit of God. So what Peter's saying is victory is certain. He just keeps coming back to that. You need that long-term hope, that long-term view that victory is sure, victory is certain. Christ has won. This life is for living out. Whose side we're on? So we trust in his victory and live for God's will who gave his son, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, to die and suffer that we may live. And in that hope, let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your sure word that as Christ suffered, so it is worth us suffering in order to do your will, in order to obey you, in order to live for Christ. Help us, Father, to have that convinced, settled view that glory is certain for us, that this is the process we must go through, that this is part of our lives now on this earth. As we suffer, as we battle against our own sin and the sins of the culture that, pull, that try to pull us back into it, but would you grant us grace, Father, to live and delight ourselves in you, to fill ourselves up with you, who has provided the victory for us in Christ. Amen.